0: Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of 10 Talks, I speak with Takoya Nakawa. Takoya is currently attending the same consciousness conference that I'm at right now in Budapest, Hungary. And as of now, Takoya is a postdoctoral researcher in philosophy at the Institute John Nikod in Paris. He received his PhD in philosophy from Hakado University in Japan in 2015. And in this episode, we take a deep dive into the mind. We talk about philosophical theories of perception, and then we talk about many different things relating to the philosophy of consciousness. I'm going to attach a link to to Takoya's website where you can find out more about the interesting work that he's doing. As you'll see, my boy's a wicked smart. So without further ado, I give you Takoya Nakawa.
1: Welcome to Tent Talks. On the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away, with your host Cody Turner. A storm coming, Mister Wayne. See,
0: so yeah, I thought we could just start with perception. So, just a deceptively simple question, I guess. Yes. What, what is perception, and what do theories of
1: perception attempt to explain? Well, um, there are at least two. Um, senses of perception, the one is psychological sense of perception uh, which is like you know we can get information about the external world through sensory organs like these kind of things can be explained in psychological theories or like um, more like physiological theories of like perceptual capacities or so on there's another sense of perception which I'm more interested in Hmm. That is like a, um, perceptual experiences. Right. So we have a perceptual experiences uh, which are totally conscious, and uh, uh, what I want to explain is the like um, how perceptual, con- perceptual experiences like occur, or how we can have perceptual experiences, or what cognitive roles perceptual experiences have or um, what ontological status perceptual experiences have or so on so on this is what i want to know
0: yeah so i was hoping we could talk about some of the main theories of perception here sense datum theorem mm-hmm. intentionalist theory the adverbialist theory but i wanted to start with the one that you wrote your dissertation on right naive realism yeah. What what i think is I guess it's called naive, it's almost insulting to call it naive, but <laughs> I guess the idea is it's called naive realism because it preserves the ordinary conception of perceptual experience as involving uh, mind-independent objects, right? Ex- like, exactly, just yeah. Someone who hasn't thought philosophically about these issues thinks that when you're operating in the world, we're exposed to the world directly, and naive realism preserves that intuition. So yes. I guess, what is naive realism, and... Why are you attracted to the theory, independent of the fact that it preserves our intuitions?
1: Right, you're right. So, naive realism is supposed to be a theory of lay persons about perception experiences. When, for example, when I, when I see the, like, this room, for example, then it, um, it's intuitively clear, for me, that the environmental objects like bottles or your laptops or you are presented to my consciousness, my perceptual experiences. Right. So, um, in order to preserve the, or just uh, we can like um, just follow the intuition mm-hmm. and saying that, yeah environmental objects, external objects, are just pre- pre- presented to my perceptual experiences. Why not? It's mm-hmm. clear. So this is basic motivation for naive realism and the mm-hmm. like, position of naive, so-called naive realism.
0: Yeah, so I guess, and I don't have too much acquaintance with this literature, but my understanding is that two of the biggest po- uh, problems, I guess, for naive realism are explaining illusion and hallucination, right? Because if yeah. we're directly acquainted with the external world, how do you explain instances of illusion where you have experiences that are phenomenologically uh, identical to veridical experiences, but in, when you have a hallucination, you're not acquainted with the external world, right? Yes. So how would how would a naive realist, or how would you in particular, go about handling cases of uh, illusion and hallucination?
1: Yeah, so uh, there are a few theories of um, hallucination, and illusions that naive realist can appeal to or use. So, but before that, what's important is that um, naive, there are there are some theoretical motivations that naive realism have. Um, in com- um, how can I say, like uh, compared with other theories of perceptual experiences. Like sense data theory or representationalist theories, or so on, so on. Mm-hmm. That these theoretical motivations should be counted as distinct from just a like um, desire to stick with naive intuition, or so on, so on. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna explain the theoretical motivations later, and uh, aside from that, so some theories and the naive realism. Uh, can give unified explanations of veritical perceptual experiences in which we uh, successfully perceive the world and the non-veritical experiences like illusions and hallucinations uh, as you have mentioned. And what do you mean by unified? Unified or- is that so the, um, for example like it is supposed that hallucination is introspectively indiscriminable from vertical perception. Right. For example, like, if I take really bad drug or drink too much whiskey, then (laughs) perhaps, you know... Take some psychedelics, (laughs) Exactly. So then, you know, the phenomenology or what it's like to have the horizontal experience is quite similar to that of vertical perception. Right. When I have it, I cannot tell whether or not it's real we are seeing or just the host entity seeing or so right? right so uh, given this a lot of the theories try to give the same explanation for this phenomena mm-hmm. right so if we take sense data theory then it says that like what it is like to successfully see environmental objects uh, can be explained in terms of the uh, acquaintance or kind of relation to sense data right. which are like a sensible qualities like redness or squareness and the same, ex- same explanation is, suppo- is supposed to be applied to the, uh, what it is like to have hallucination mm-hmm. right? then this is the sense of unified explanation we try to give the same explanation for phenomenology of hallucination and the vertical perception
0: Right, so yeah, the idea, you so, just to make sure I'm understanding, you have to give the same account of experience when it comes to veridical perceptions, and veridical is just like an accurate perception, a non hallucination, non illusion. Mm. Um, And so the supposed problem for naive realism is that it seems like you ostensibly can't give that unified account when you're talking about hallucinations and illusions because you're not directly acquainted. When you're saying, the naive realist wants to say, When it comes to vertical experience, we're directly acquainted with mind-independent objects. But you can't say the same thing with respect to hallucination and illusion. Um, I want to go back to the sense datum theorem um, in a sec, but just to kind of nail down the naive realist. So you're saying there are naive realist views that actually do give that unified explanation. And then, if I understand correctly, there are also naive realist views that respond to that problem of hallucination and illusion by appealing to disjunctivism, yeah. where they say, you know what? No, mm-hmm. we're just not gonna, we're not gonna give a unified explanation. We're gonna give one explanation to account for vertical perspe- perception and another to account for hallucination and illusion. Exactly. So, which of those two naive realist
1: <coughs> on paths do you take, right. verse? Typically, naive realists take the latter path. Mm. Uh, disjunctivism. That, exactly. So, naive realists just uh, deny. The requirement of like unified explanation, then just an idealist take one explanation for the phenomenology of vertical perception and another explanation for um, phenomenology of non-vertical experiences like hallucination, and illusion. So, if you evaluate, like. Um, theoretical unity as an explanatory virtue, mm. then you are more attracted to non-naive realist theories, like representationalism or sensitive theories. Right. So, but if you want to preserve our naive intuition about phenomenology of our ordinary experiences, yeah. then naive is more attracted for you. So that's a kind of a motivational a choice point. So you pre- so is it fair to say that
0: you value preserving pre-theoretical intuitions over considerations of theoretical unity?
1: Indeed, yes. So um, for me, um, like the um, how can I say, like uh, um, the fact that <coughs> in. Have in having perceptual experiences, the environmental world, external world, uh, is directly present to my experience or to me. It seems like it. Yeah, this is something undeniable. Yeah, yeah this is really starting point. <clears> throat> so throat> even though I may face some difficulty in explaining some and prefer phenomena, like illusion or hallucination and so on so on. It cannot be the reason for denying this obvious fact. Mm -hmm. So this is my starting point to take Naive Realism and try to explain uh, illusion and hallucinations in different manner. Yeah, and wouldn't
0: another potential virtue of Naive Realism is that it avoids the philosophical problem of skepticism. Mm. Right? So the traditional problem being uh, how do you, We could all be brains in the vats. How do we know that the external world exists? But the naive realist doesn't really face that problem because they're saying, well, we know the external world exists because we're directly acquainted with the external world. We're not acquainted with these sense data that are blocking us off like a veil of perception in the head.
1: Yeah. Right? Yes. So uh, as I have mentioned, there are some theoretical motivations for naive realists. Yeah. One yeah. of which is to avoid the skepticism that you have mentioned so if uh we are directly acquainted with what we are directly acquainted with are just a sense of data or kind of some other intermediate um, entities mm-hmm. then how we can know about the external world from the access to the intermediate Entities like sense data and so on so on. Mm. This is one of the like resource um, one of the ground for Skeptical doubt about how we can know external know about external world, right? But as you have mentioned, yes, naive realism can say that so we are just directly acquainted with external world We can directly know what it is like Yeah, <laughs> just so that
0: imagine what do you think about? I've briefly mentioned that uh, I'm kind of have an affinity towards panpsychism, but what do you think about Berkeley's idealism? Because my understanding of that is that's also a response to the problem of skepticism. Because he says yeah. another way to avoid the problem of skepticism is to say, yeah, it's not that we're directly acquainted with the external world like the naive realist wants to say, yeah. but there is no external world. <laughs> external <laughs> objects are just <laughs> just hear me mm-hmm. External mm-hmm. objects are just bundles of perception. Right. Right. So. It's ultimately and I hope you know we'll talk about the metaphysics of consciousness perhaps later but ultimately it's a uh,
1: prioritizing mind over matter as opposed to matter over mind right so uh, I think idealism is coherent position so if you if we take idealism like Barclay's position like we can in a very peculiar way avoid skepticism about the external world, right? There's no external world. <laughs> we don't have to care. Just bundles <laughs> of perception. Exactly. But, so the reason, the motivational reason why I don't take the view is that if idealism is true, hmm. it seems to me that it leads to a solipsist. Um, solipsistic theory or solipsism mm. that so I define th- uh, what
0: solipsism is just for the viewers
1: like uh, or um, listeners <laughs> Yeah, the view I have in my mind is that so um, I cannot get out from my phenomenal experiences mm. then it means that I cannot meet other subjects, mm. other persons, who can have conscious experiences like me. Can never directly get into their consciousness and experience what it's like to be them? Um,
0: sorry, could you say that again? Isn't that just what you're saying? That you can never, you're, you can never escape the confines of your own consciousness? Yeah. So I infer that you're conscious based upon the fact that you behave like me and you have an, a brain like I do, but I can never actually get
1: inside your head to know whether you're actually conscious. Right? Uh, no, uh, what I want to say is something more. Oh, okay. So if idealism is true, yeah. so uh, everything that I can experience is just uh, like mind-dependent entities, mm-hmm. like dependent on my mind, right? Mm-hmm. So in some sense, all I can experience is something I produce, Right. my brain produce, right? Then if, but if I cannot get out from the experiences that my brain or I by myself produce, Mm -hmm. then I cannot meet other persons or other subjects who can also have conscious experiences. Right. So, in that sense, um, um, if idealism is true, I'm very alone. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: swear to God, I'm conscious too, man. I'm here with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but if you well, are my... Uh-huh. Projection? Yeah, my projections In your dream? My image or something I produce. dream character. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's exactly what I'm very much worried about. Yeah. If you are something my brain or I produce, right. I cannot meet other persons in my through my experiences.
0: So the worry is that idealism collapses into solipsism. And again, where solipsism is just the view that your mind is the only mind that exists and ultimately you are the only thing that exists. There is no external world. There are no other minds. There's just your mind. But aren't there, I would say that quickly, aren't there forms of idealism that don't collapse into solipsism like Berkeley, for instance, he wants to say that, you know, cause like one, one problem with idealism is, okay, you're saying that to be is to be perceived. Yeah. There are no unperceived objects. So what mm-hmm. happens when I look away and I'm not looking at that tree? Does yeah. that tree just stop existing? <laughs> yeah. And Berkeley, to preserve object continuity, mm. wants to say that, no, actually everything's existing in the mind of God. So yeah. it's not an individual, it doesn't collapse into that individual solipsistic view. Mm. It's just, we're all existing in the mind of God, or you could go like a pantheistic route and say that God is the universe or something like that. Yeah, And, and perhaps you could preserve the existence of other minds within yeah. that framework of idealism but I, I don't know we don't have to get too far yeah this. we can move on <laughs> um that's that's interesting though but again mm-hmm. I, pr- I promise you i'm conscious I'm conscious. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much
1: it, it makes me feel better you know oh i'm not alone yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what a zombie would say <laughs> so that it, indeed it, it's real you know like uh First of all, when I was an undergraduate student, I was very much attracted to idealism. Mm. So because it seems to me true, it seemed to me true. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like. uh, However, if it's true, as I said, you know, I can be the only person who has a very very special status yeah in this world i am the only one like how can i say like uh, always i'm a center of this phenomenal world right and in the phenomenal world there is no other center yeah then it means that i'm very alone special kind of center of the world
0: there's an old solipsist joke it's i'm a solipsist and you should be one too
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's start a solipsist club Yeah, I I really don't like that sort of picture. Oh, yeah. I want to escape from that. Yeah. Then finally, I get at naive realism. Right. Which is also kind of, you know, it seems to me it's also true, can be true, and preserving all of the intuitions about perceptual experiences. Yeah. And it does not lead to the solipsistic picture that I am only the center of this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just that.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I thought we could now just quickly distinguish naive realism from the other kind of most popular views of perception that are the main competitors. So you already briefly mentioned one, the sense datum theorem, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea there is just that you're not directly acquainted with the external world. There's like, you're directly acquainted with sense data, and these are kind of images in the mind that stand in between
1: the subject and the external world. Is that the basic... I um, there are a lot of different um, philosophical characterizations of sense data. Mm-hmm. But one conception of sense data is that um, sensible and mind-dependent entities. So uh, the, according to the conception of sense data, uh, sense data theory is that uh, in having perceptual experiences, we are aware of like sensible, mind-dependent entities. which are different from the external objects. Yeah, not the
0: object itself. Yeah. Right. And... Right, I mean, so I guess one problem that immediately arises with that view is that it faces the problem of skepticism to an extreme degree because it
1: seems like it's isolating you from the external world. Exactly. So, uh, how we can infer uh, Mm -hmm. from the knowledge about sense data to the knowledge about the external world? Right. Uh, this is a real big epistemological problem which has been post, uh, posted to the sense data theorists. Right. Yeah.
0: So what about the intentionalist theory of perception?
1: Right. So uh, yeah. like, um, as I have said about sense data theories, there are a lot of different characterizations of intentionalism or representationalism. But the basic idea is that um, the phenomenology, of perceptual experiences uh, are identical to or grounded in the content of perceptual experiences intentional content of perceptual experiences this is the basic idea right so, and by intentional content you just mean what the experience is about. about yeah exactly so yes. for example like if i'm seeing this cup in front of me then intentionalists to say that uh, what I'm aware of in having this experience uh, is explained by um, what this experience is about. Mm-hmm. What, what this experience represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a basic idea. Right. So the idea is that it's completely exhausted by its intentional content? Exactly. Uh, there are a few different versions of intentionalism. Some versions uh, appeals, appeals to not only the content of experiences, mm-hmm. but the manner of uh, Representing as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So there are various kind of theoretical versions of intentionalism, but basic idea is that uh, What we are experiencing is explained by uh, what the experiences represent right and
0: like the sense datum theorem, that would preserve the theoretical unity because it explains veridical perception in the same manner that it explains hallucination and illusion. Exactly. So it would say that hallucination is just a misrepresentation
1: of the external world. Exactly. Or something like that. Exactly. So, uh, um, yes, so intentionalists basically try to give the same explanation for vertical perceptions and non-veridical perceptions. Mm. So, when I hallucinate pink elephant, for example, <laughs> so, um, the um, what I'm aware of, like, pink elephant, yeah. is explained by what the experience represents, the content of experience. Right. So, pink elephant content. Is ex- explain explains the um, my experiential awareness of the pink elephant. Mm. Okay, the last
0: one that I wanted to discuss, and this is the one that I have the least grasp on personally, is the yeah. adverbial theory of perception. Oh, okay. Yeah, so maybe you could help me get my head around this one. So <laughs> I guess like my basic understanding is it wants to say that when you're experiencing something, I'm kind of cheating because I'm looking at my notes, by the way, when you're experiencing something brown, <laughs> yeah. you're experiencing it you're not experiencing the thing brown, but you're experiencing brownly? Yeah. Or something like theory, that? Yeah. But on the face of it, it looks like it's just a semantic analysis of sentences about experiences, but it's it's more than that. It's, it's, an, it's a theory of experience, not yeah. just a theory of the semantics involving experience. No. So right? theory of experiences, yes. Okay. And, yeah. So, my understanding is that a verbalist, they want to... Um... They want to preserve a lot of what's intuitive about the sense datum theorem without being committed to a lot of the metaphysical like sense data or something like that.
1: Okay, so uh, sense data theory um, is supposed to posit like, sense data as an object or entity which is different from environmental object but also different from the subject itself. Mm -hmm. however um, adverbial theory um, says that (coughs) um, what we are aware of in having perceptual experiences are the aspect of perceptual experiences themselves Mm -hmm. so we, we are not aware of something um, distinct from the subject, mm. so somehow we are aware of some aspect of the subject itself. Oh, okay. This is basic idea of adverbial theory. Uh, at least one interpretation of it is like that. So, okay. I guess. So, I guess the question that I have is: Does it is it vulnerable to the problem
0: of skepticism? Because you're not postulating these mental, mind dependent objects that stand in between the subject and the external world. You're just postulating the experience which is a part of the subject itself but you're still not the adverbialists aren't going as far as the naive realists, right? And saying that we have that direct acquaintance with the external world
1: Is that right? Right, so in that sense um, adverbial adverbial theories uh, face the same epistemological problem as sense data theories Mm -hmm. I think Uh, because, you know, if we accept the epistemological principle that uh, what we can directly know through perceptual experiences is what we are aware of. Then uh, it follows that adverbial theories cannot say that we can directly know about the external world through perceptual experiences, hmm. because according to the theory, what we can aware of, what we can be aware of in having perceptual experiences are only aspects of um, subject, like phenomenal aspects of the subject itself. Mm. So how we can get access to the external world, this problem remains, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, One, uh, in just doing some research on this last night, one interesting objection, which I thought might be worth bringing up from Frank Jackson to the adverbial theory, is he says, so if someone's experiencing a brown square and a green triangle, the
1: adverbialist wants. To, no, I it. Yeah.
0: The adverbialist you know, wants to say that they're going to construe that as you're, you're experiencing brownly and squarely and triangularly. So you're kind of construing that as a kind of long conjunction. But that conjunction is indisc It can't discriminate between that experience of a brown square and a green trial triangle and another experience of a brown triangle and a green square. Yeah. That conjunction can't discriminate between those two experiences. So I guess the worry is that the adverbial theory is indeterminate between experiences to some respect?
1: Mm. Is that...? (coughs) Yeah. So uh, that is one famous objection to adverbial theories. And uh, I don't know how adverbial theorists want to answer the objection. That's simply because I'm not an adverbial theorist. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> that's, that's how you're pregnant <laughs> there. Yeah, so, so yeah, then I don't posit, you know, <laughs> any... I cannot give any plausible answers from adverbial theorist side to the mm-hmm. objection. But one interesting interpretation of adverbial theory is that it can be identified with courier theories, Mm. In consciousness uh, in the metaphysics of consciousness Mm. so um, you know the phenomenology how can I say like uh, um phenomenology Mm. of conscious experiences yeah are identified with like intrinsic properties of the experiences according to Korea theory right so adverbia Adverbial theories seem to be committed to the ancolia um, theory in uh. this interpretation, right? Then it's, it becomes more understandable and we can easily understand what the theory says or means. Right. So, for example, like, if my experience is constituted by retocholia mm-hmm. according to colia theories, then the same fact can be described, according to adverbial theorists, theorist, as like I experience redly.
0: hmm Right. So, I, and I guess depending on your stance about the metaphysics of consciousness, that could either be a feature of the mm-hmm. theory or a, a bug. But that might be a good transition now to kind of turn towards consciousness and discuss that. Explicitly. Oh yeah. Um, so, in one of the abstracts for a paper that you have coming out that you sent me, um, I thought you just in a really clear way, divided up the conceptual landscape with respect to different questions that research can, researchers can ask about consciousness. Yeah. And so I thought, first you could just briefly describe each question, and then I wanted to kind of hone in on the conceptual question, the ontological and the phenomenological, and talk a little bit about those.
1: Yeah, okay. So uh, I have tried to make a map of consciousness research. Mm. So the map consists of questions and approaches, and then I distinguish between five different kinds of questions about consciousness. The first is conceptual, the second is phenomenological, and the third is epistemological, and the fourth is ontological, Mm -hmm. and the fifth is axiological. Right. So,
0: Um, okay, so let's start with the conceptual. So what is the conceptual question about consciousness? Yeah,
1: the conceptual question about consciousness is how should we characterize the concept of consciousness? This is the conceptual question about consciousness. Right, how do we define it? Define or characterize or, yeah, that's it.
0: Right, so then you you distinguish between, and I think this will be a good segue into the illusionism stuff, um, which I want to talk about because I'm an anti-illusionist guy. Uh, you are an
1: illusionist? No, 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 I'm anti-illusionist. <laughs> I, I, I'm I think I'm anti-illusionist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: so uh um well first you, you distinguish between two possible approaches to the conceptual question. So yeah. what are those approaches?
1: <clears throat> so our first approach is so-called example-based characterization. So in order to characterize or define the concept of consciousness, we can first like collect examples of conscious states right okay this perceptual experience is conscious state Mm. how about um having thought maybe some thoughts are conscious states for example if i think about like the whiskey bar i have visited yesterday then the thought is one of the conscious states right Mm. in this way we can collect various examples of conscious experiences or conscious states Mm -hmm. then By referring to the bunch of examples of conscious states, Mm -hmm. we can define what is consciousness or what is, you know, conscious experiences.
0: Okay, so yeah, you pinpoint things that are definitely instantiations of consciousness, and then you say, what do they have
1: in common or something like that. Exactly. So, you know, consciousness is something (laughs) in common, between these or all, all of the examples mm. so in this way we don't have to uh, give any description of the essence of consciousness or like a kind of fundamental feature of consciousness without giving any explanation of essence or fundamental features of consciousness we right. can get the concept of consciousness okay. just by referring to the examples of conscious states this is the idea
0: Right. So then, you just mentioned essence. That's the the other approach would be giving a
1: more universal definition of
0: consciousness from Exa- the start.
1: Yes, exactly. The second approach is so called essence based characterization, uh, which is that you know uh, we can characterize consciousness, the term of consciousness. Consciousness. I cannot show this on. <laughs> Quotation mark, <laughs> Quotation mark you know. Consciousness, the C <laughs> word Yeah So to characterize it in terms of Some essential properties such as Like Appearance, reality collapse mm. So it is supposed That You know um, How can I say Like uh, When I have conscious experiences Mm-hmm it appears to me that I have conscious experiences. Right. But, you know, it's impossible uh, the appearance, uh, for the appearance to be wrong. Right. If it seems to me or it appears to me that I have some kind of conscious experiences, yes. then I have that kind of conscious experiences. Uh, this is so-called, like, appearance-reality-collapse, which is supposed to be one essential character of conscious experiences. Right, so the idea there is that
0: with respect to other things in the world there is isn't an appearance-reality distinction. A water appears one way, but in reality it's another way. It's just a collection of H2O. Whereas when it comes to consciousness, there is no appearance-reality
1: gap. The appearance of consciousness is the reality. Exactly. So a good example is this. So even though um, it appears to me that there's a pink elephant in front of me Mm-hmm. The appearance can be wrong. Right, it's just a hallucinatory, possibly. Mm-hmm. However, in the case of conscious experiences, if it seems to me or it appears to me that I have a conscious experience of pink elephant, right, then I have a conscious experience of pink elephant. Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. So okay. So I think this is now a good time to bring in the illusionism versus anti-illusion. So another paper that uh, or an abstract to a paper that you're working on is with respect to this. Illusionism. So illusionism, as I understand it, is a theory about consciousness which says that consciousness is an illusion. And there are some people that think it's impossible for a consciousness to (laughs) be an illusion by pointing to the kind of the appearance is a reality thing that we were just talking about. And there are other people like Keith Frankish, I think he's one of the main players here, Mm -hmm. um, who think that no, consciousness can be an illusion. And in the paper, to my understanding, you're kind of working out the debate between these two. So just to put my cards on the table here... Yes. The the way I'm understanding consciousness... I understand... I use the what it's like locution from Thomas Nagel. Mm -hmm. So something's conscious if and only if there's something it's like to be that thing from the first person point of view. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that illusionism is incoherent because of the appearance reality thing that we were just talking about. You can be... You know, going back to skepticism, you can be skeptical about the existence of the external world, about the existence of other minds, about the past, even about the self, right? Like when Descartes says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, I think he's smuggling in the eye. I think it's, it's more, uh, you know, he's smuggling in it. It's more, um, there are thoughts, therefore something exists. Because you can think, you're think, you can think you're skiing and not be skiing, but you can't think you're thinking and not be thinking so, yeah, yeah my, that's my perspective. There's, there's, there certainly seems to be an appearance of yeah. the external world or a seeming, even if the external world doesn't actually exist and we're just brains in, the bat, in a vat, and that appearance is what I'm calling consciousness. Right. So, you can say that it's an illusion, but then you're just proving the reality of consciousness from my perspective. <laughs> yeah. You, are you do you share that, so, or are you on the
1: Keith Frankish side of things? You are taking really anti- un- <coughs> sorry. You are taking really anti-illusionist side, oh, yeah. right? A lot of philosophers uh, cannot understand the position of illusionism itself because <laughs> phenomenal consciousness is something that you know um, seems to be impossible to doubt, right? So, it seems to us, many philosophers, that we cannot doubt the existence of phenomenal consciousness because it's here. I'm having it. Right. How can I doubt this? (laughs) Because there is this. Yeah. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, but, you know, so, um, um, indeed, there are mm. a few, like, sober philosophers Mm. who really doubt the existence of phenomenal consciousness. So how can it be possible? And uh, the one more another more interesting question is that how such a fundamental debate uh, can occur mm. between so philosophers, right? Yeah. Philosophers are supposed to be very intellectual and uh, clever and logical and so on, and so on. Clearly
0: defining their terms.
1: Yeah. But, you know, like, uh, one side, like, anti-illusionist, right. says that, are you serious?
0: It's impossible, clearly impossible. Yeah. Um, phenomenal consciousness
1: is there. It's nonsense to doubt it. Yeah. But the other side says that, no, no, it can, can be doubted. Right. So we can doubt the phenomenon itself. So how such a fundamental debate happens? Yeah, this is really interesting issue for me. That's why I, I'm writing the paper. Right. So, my analysis of the debate is that uh, the fundamental disagreement consists in how to define the term phenomenal consciousness. Mm. So, as you have mentioned, phenomenal consciousness is defined in terms of the location of what it is like. Yeah. So my ex, uh, my mental state has. Uh, oh, sorry. So, I have a... How can I say... Okay. Um, my mental state is phenomenally conscious if and only if my mental state has what it is like. This means that there is something uh, it is like to have the mental state for me. Also. From the inside, so to speak. Yeah. Right. However the location of what it is like uh itself is um, ambiguous the vague so what it means or so right right so uh
0: yeah i've come into contact with some philosophers who they it just that phrasing doesn't really work for them they'll say oh what it's like you mean what is it similar to or something like that and i'm like no that's not what i mean yeah exactly. but they just can't they can't for whatever reason they don't the phrase
1: doesn't work for them in terms of getting them onto the property we're tracking here. Exactly. So there are two different analysis, analysis of the locution of what it is like. One is that it is just a technical notion. Only philosophers, trained philosophers can understand what it means. Yeah. So that it's not totally, it's not at all ordinary notion. It's totally different from standard English sense of what it is like. This is one understanding of the phrase, Hmm. what it's like, but there's another interpretation of it, which is that, no, what it is like, the locution uh, comes from ordinary English. We can understand what it means by ordinary English phrase of what it is like, or usage of what it is like stuff.
0: So is it that latter control of what it's like that allows you to doubt the existence of consciousness, or to claim that it's an illusion? Because I'm just trying to get a handle on what construal or phenomenal consciousness allows you to doubt it, okay. or that's coherent with illusionism.
1: Yeah, in my opinion, uh, if we understand phenomenal consciousness in terms of what it is like locution, interpreted in ordinary English, then we cannot doubt the existence of phenomenal consciousness. Uh, the question is when the North, the existence of Phenomenal Consciousness can be doubted. Mm-hmm. So my answer is that if we define the term of Phenomenal Consciousness in terms of the following property, that is, it is distinct from physical or functional properties. Mm. If we add this condition into the definition of Phenomenal Consciousness, then Phenomenal Consciousness can be doubted because there may be no property such that it is distinct from physical or functional properties. Oh, I see.
0: So, yeah, some philosophers will just define it in an anti-physicalist manner from the get-go and then say, okay, well, if that's your concept of it, that can be doubted because consciousness is, in reality, just a physical phenomenon. Mm. Okay. So then okay so your conclusion is that this disagreement between illusionism and anti-illusionism is ultimately a semantic disagreement
1: um kind of meta-conceptual disagreement I'm not sure but my what i mean is that so my first conclusion is that illusionists implicitly or explicitly define the term of phenomenal consciousness In terms of uh, the condition, the special, uh, how can I say, in terms, sorry, Um, illusionists try to define implicitly or explicitly (coughs) the notion of phenomenal consciousness in terms of the condition that phenomenal consciousness is Ontologically distinct from any physical or functional properties. Right. And uh, but anti-illusionists like you yeah. do not <laughs> define the term phenomenal consciousness in the same way. Right. They do not understand phenomenal consciousness as conceptually involving the condition that it um, must be distinct from physical or functional properties. I see. I so see. that is the fundamental disagreement. And then the real dispute is whether or not we should define phenomenal consciousness in terms of the condition that it must be distinct oh. from physical or functional properties. Okay. So which definition is better or how we should define the phenomenal consciousness? I see. So that's a real debate, I think.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's a good segue into the ontological question Mm -hmm. about consciousness, right? So you define the conceptual one. So what is, just for the listeners who aren't acquainted with all this weird terminology, what is the ontological question about consciousness?
1: Yeah, so the ontological question is that, so how is consciousness located in the world? And this is the basic ontological question, but it can be divided into two sub-questions. The first question is that uh, what relation holds between consciousness and the physical world, in particular our brain. Mind-body problem. Yeah. As is classically referred yes, to. Yes. Exactly. The second question is so-called extension question, that is, uh, what or who has consciousness? Okay. So, y- yeah, how many
0: animals have conscious? or ants consciousness, where's the dividing line? Maybe if you're panpsychist, everything's yeah, conscious? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, yeah,
1: that's a question, yes.
0: Yeah, okay, so uh, just quickly on the mind-body problem, I was just wondering, I want to get your perspective on the hard problem of consciousness. So, in a few words, the hard problem, the idea is that consciousness resists a naturalistic, physicalistic explanation in a way that other phenomenon don't, right? So, one way of framing it would be, yeah so we we've discovered all these correlations between brain states mm-hmm. and phenomenal states so if a certain area of the brain lights up there's a corresponding red percept for example yeah. but we haven't discovered anything in the character that has the character of explanations explaining how dull physical matter gives rise to the phenomenology of consciousness and it seems conceivable that all of these brain processes just to, and I know you know all of this I'm just doing this for the listeners mm-hmm. um, that all these brain processes take place in the dark, in the absence of any consciousness. So some people think that this, because of that, consciousness is a, like, categorically different than other natural phenomenon. It can't be explained in the same way. Mm-hmm. What's
1: your basic perspective on the hard problem? Yeah. Okay, so um, the question, like, uh, make me, uh, going back to naive realism stuff. Mm. So I'm naive realist. So um, that, in my opinion, uh, phenomenal consciousness is extended to the physical world. So the Phenomenal consciousness overlaps with the physical world. Ah. So, for example, if... Uh, or, no um, When I'm seeing you, my Phenomenal consciousness is grounded in the whole physical process between you and me. So maybe like some light, is reflected from your body into my retina, and then uh, causing my brain activities. Mm-hmm. Right There is such a physical process between us. Mm-hmm. And uh, my phenomenal consciousness is not only grounded in my brain, but also grounded in the whole process. Okay. So in that sense, my phenomenal consciousness is extended to external world, including you. So, mm. so I finally take... Kind of dual aspect of theory of the metaphysics of consciousness. So, if I describe um, the process between you, like uh, in physical terms or like uh, objective terms, then um, this process is described as a kind of physical process, including some theories of light or including some theories of brain or so on so. On. Yeah but if I try to describe this process in subjective terms, or consciousness terms, uh, I can say that I'm conscious of you, or you know I have a perceptual exp- conscious perceptual experience, which are constituted by partially constituted by you or so on and so on. These, okay. Yeah these are two, the same processes, but described in different ways.
0: Right. Okay. So yeah, so two questions. So dual is one clarificatory. Is dual aspect theory often construed as a kind of dualism? Right. So the idea is that from, it's like, uh, if you're talking about, uh, like light, right? Like particle wave, like there are, it's both a particle and a wave. Hmm. I'm going to get in trouble talking about science here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All my ignorance is going to be exposed. Um, yeah. But it's both at the same time. And you're saying something similar is going on with consciousness. It is a physical process, but it also is something above or different than a physical process. There are two aspects to it, neither of which are reducible to the other. So would it be a kind of dualism
1: because of that? Well, um, it's a very subtle and a subtle issue. But my idea is that... Ontologically, there's only one entity or only one process. However, you know, what what is dual is the way of description, ways of description. So we can describe it in subjective terms. Mm. Then we can characterize the process as kind of conscious process or mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, conscious experiences. But if I try to describe it in physical terms, we can characterize it some physical process. So <coughs> perhaps it may lead to property dualism. Okay. Right? So the same process can have d- two distinct properties. One is conscious properties which are consciously accessible, other yeah. is physical properties which can be investigated in physical science or so So, yeah, but I'm not sure what I'm explicitly committed to is the view that there's only one process ontologically, yeah, but it can be described in different ma- manners.
0: I see. Oh, um, so I just feel obligated for the listeners who might be a little lost. So, just broadly speaking, physicalism is the idea that consciousness. Is nothing over and above the brain. It's a physical property, like Mm. other things, like other, ultimately in a completely physical world. Dualism is the idea that it's something metaphysically over and above the brain. There's Mm. substance dualism, which says that the mind is this substance kind of riding around in the body or something like that. And then there's property dualism, which you just alluded to, which says that there's just physical substances or things, but the brain might have two different properties which are irreducible conscious properties and brain properties Mm -hmm. and you're saying that maybe dual aspect theory is a kind of property dualism but it's it's ambiguous and it's it's nuanced and different people might have different ideas about what metaphysical view it entails um yeah exactly yes okay you said you were partial to resilient monism though that's right you said you were partial to resilient monism a bit Yes. yes. Did you mention that? We don't have to go into that,
1: but yeah, well, uh, that's the exactly. metaphysical view I prefer. Yeah, Mo, I think Russellian monism is uh, some, somehow interpreted as a sort of dual aspect of theory, mm. right? So it's only there is only one kind of existence, right? Yeah. It's a kind of very monistic theory, very neutral entity. There is only one neutral kind of entity which can be described as physical process, or which can be described as conscious experience. Mm-hmm. This is my basic, underst- like, uh, rough understanding of one interpretation of Russellian monism.
0: Yeah, I guess for me personally, I prefer the panpsychist interpretation, mm. where, okay, so I guess just since we're stumbled onto this topic, Russellian monism, the idea is that, uh, you can think about it as the conjunction of three claims, I suppose. The first is that physics just describes the structure of the physical universe. Mm-hmm. So if you think about what an electron is, it's just defined in dispositional terms in terms of how it's related to other entities within a spatio-temporal mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. The second claim is that there's some intrinsic properties which underlie that structure. Right. Right. right that? I see. There are some people who are dispositionalists who just say, oh, there's just structure all the way down. Right? And then the third is that those intrinsic properties which constitute the physical structure are conscious properties. So then that's where you get the panpsychism that comes in, where ultimately consciousness itself right. partly constitutes right. the intrinsic nature of the physical world. Right. Um, but then there are like pan proto psychist interpretations of it. Um, so yeah. Another quick question I had though, with respect to your naive realist view yeah. of consciousness, is. And I think I briefly asked this the other day, but does it entail a kind of extended consciousness view? right? So there are discussions in the literature right now about whether consciousness can be extended. And the way that you were talking suggested to me that not only do you think that consciousness can be extended, you think that it already is extended.
1: Yes, it is. Okay. So, uh, you know... So it's, it's not just in the head or in the skull. Exactly. It's a controversial, but many of naive rest- are committed to the view that consciousness, mainly perceptual consciousness, is actually extended to the external world. So it's one implication of naive realism.
0: But it's not a necessary feature of naive realists?
1: Are there some naive realists which, which who would deny the extended consciousness hypothesis? Uh, they do not discuss the ontology of con- phenomenal consciousness explicitly. So they just talk about the metaphysical status of perceptual experiences so, you know, they do not use terms of, like, uh, extended, being extended, or extension, or so on and so on. Um, but I think it's implication of naive realism.
0: Okay. Okay, so the um, third question, what's the phenomenological question about consciousness? So thus far, we've talked about conceptual, ontological. I'm just going. We don't have to go through all five, yep, but I just, yep. these are the main three I wanted to
1: cover. That's yep. okay. um, so yeah. So what is the phenomenological question? All right. So phenomenological question. So the question is: What phenomenological features does consciousness have? Uh, this question is also divided into three sub questions, depending on what aspect of consciousness to focus on. And what what do you mean by phenomenological, Could you define that? Uh, Phenomenological, you know, like uh, um, when we have a conscious experience, so from our own subjective point of view, we can find out some features or properties of the conscious experience. So the features or properties of conscious experiences that we can detect from our own perspective Mm. are basically so-called phenomenological features or phenomenological properties of Mm. consciousness.
0: Right. So in defining it, you say that there's... So you give kind of a tripartite distinction between three different kinds of phenomenological features? Yes. Yeah, so could you
1: kind of define each one of those? Yes, so the first is content. The content of conscious experiences so the question is um, what kinds of content does conscious experience have what can have so like content, the examples of content are like um, color or shape or direction movement or so on so on. these properties are usually counted as a constituent of conscious experiences. Okay. So, So yeah, again, what the experience is about. It's a red experience. It's an experience of a brown square, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Pink elephant. So, for example, like, uh, uh, color or shape are obviously represented in our conscious experiences. But how about, like, uh, natural kinds? Mm. Treeness or cupness or personness? Mm-hmm. Or, or so on so on. what kind of um, features or properties can be represented mm-hmm. in conscious experiences this is one of the phenomenological question mm-hmm. and then there's dimension yeah uh, yeah is that right and the, the second one is structure and the third one is oh, dimension right. Right. right so um the second sub question uh of uh, the se- second sub question about phenomenological questions is about structure of consciousness. Structures of consciousness are invariable features of conscious experiences like unity or figure ground structure or continuity and so on so on. Yeah. So the sense of invariable is that so many conscious experiences have the same feature right so
0: so you might say that there are some necessary structural features of consciousness depending upon what your perspective is yeah actually one question i wanted to ask you about this is uh do you have a perspective along the unity of consciousness right So, like there are some philosophers who will say that consciousness is necessarily unified from a structural perspective and mm. that there are different experiences that compose consciousness like right now, there's auditory experiences. There's a redness, and there's something it's like to experience each one of those components individually. But also, it seems like there's something it's like to experience all of them at the same time. And so the idea is that all these experiences are always unified. Mm. There's actually there's a PhD student um, in my department. Her name's Janelle. She's writing her thesis on the unity, and she's because like some people will point to different. Like split brain patients to as potential counter examples against the unity thesis. Right. Yeah. 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 So, do you have any? What, what's your, do you have any
1: thoughts about that? <laughs> Indeed. So, it's very difficult for me to understand. So, what it means to say consciousness is unified or conscious experiences are unified. So, I think that. Uh, One reason why I face difficulties difficulties in understanding that is that, you know, I Have not had any experience Which I want to call disunified consciousness or disunified experiences, right? So uh, without any notion of disunity of consciousness I cannot clearly understand what it means to say consciousness is unified.
0: I guess for me, I'm just understanding unity as the phenomenal unity thesis where consciousness is unified if and only if there's something it's like to experience all the different experiences you're having at once. There's something it's like to experience them jointly, so to speak, or together. And I'm interested, like I have my own reasons for being interested in it because I think that if you deny the unity thesis, it might be easier to make headway on the combination problem for mm-hmm. panpsychism. Ah, uh, no, I see, yeah. Um, where, yeah, the idea there is okay, if you're a panpsychist, you think that consciousness inhabits the fundamental level of reality. How do you get a bunch of these little conscious quirks or something mm-hmm. like that to mm-hmm. add up to a human consciousness? Um, if consciousness experiences are necessarily unified, it ostensibly seems harder to see how they could combine. Mm-hmm. Whereas Maybe if they're not,
1: you can make some headway in the combination problem or something like okay. that. Okay, so maybe the question I want to ask first for the, uh, what it means to say that consciousness is unified is that... So, in what cases we want to say that the conscious experience can be a little bit disunified or a little bit... Yeah, you know, like... Uh, right. For example, like when I drive a car... While listening to music, mm-hmm. then the content of my visual experience about the like driving uh, is somehow disassociated from the ex- my auditory experience of the music. Mm-hmm. Is this the case in which we want to call it uh, my conscious experience is a little bit disunified or not? Uh,
0: for me, I would I would be tempted to resist that. So that's kind of like an absent-minded driving mm-hmm. example. Yeah. I'm tempted to interpret cases like that as being cases of what Ned Block calls phenomenological overflow, Mm -hmm. where consciousness in that case, right, you're driving home and you don't even know how you got home Mm -hmm. because you're so in tune with the music and you weren't even paying attention to the road. I want to say that your consciousness outstrips attention in that case, but there still is an overall what it's likeness to the entire experience, despite the fact that there is this rupture between... Despite the fact that the, the experience um, overflows attention, right? Your, the attentional spotlight is directed on, on a particular aspect of the experience, but there's still what it's likeness to the whole experience. But that's a controversial position.
1: Right, but so my, maybe my point is that... So how about this? You know, you attend to visual experiences half, but the half of your attention is directed at the music, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So, kind of, your attention is okay. like distributed to two different kinds of experiences, visual and auditory, but yeah. the same amount, like 5% on visual experience, and, uh, no, sorry, 50% on visual experiences, other 50% on auditory experiences. Mm-hmm. In that case, do you want to say that my your conscious experiences are disunified a little bit?
0: I'd still be tempted to say no, but I, I don't know. I think I'm just a really bad multitasker.
1: So
0: <laughs> <laughs> I might have trouble uh, getting myself into that phenomenological s- state via introspection. Yeah, but, but, um,
1: yeah, okay, anyway, my point is yeah. that if we model the disunity this uni- this of consciousness by referring to this example, yeah. then I can understand what it means to say consciousness is unified. Mm-hmm. If I can focus on only one task or only one kind of visual experience, then my conscious experience is perfectly unified, for example. Mm-hmm. And then the being disu- being unified or being disunified can be counted as a kind of div- matter of degree. Right? Mm-hmm. My conscious experience is now 20% disunified or 50% disunified or so on. Or so oh, okay. it makes sense, right? So but if we do not model like the unity of consciousness in this way, then in what sense you want to uh, characterize the unity of consciousness itself? Yeah. There are, for example, like if there is a huge black spot on my visual field, for example. (laughs) Like, I can only see left side and the right side. I cannot totally see the middle side of my visual field. Right. Like, black line dividing it. Exactly. In that case, do you want to say that my visual experience is disunified?
0: No. I don't know. So, so I feel like, you know, that kind of closely associates maybe with the split brain phenomenon. Because in my reading of it that's one of the main phenomenons that people will point to they're like look this is a case of disunified consciousness where it seems like there's one subject who is kind of experiencing a split in their perception Mm. in the way that you're suggesting or maybe even more extreme way than you're suggesting it sounds like but i think one thing that's ambiguous there with the split brain case split brain patients is you could ask whether there's even one subject anymore Right? So is there one disunified subject, or are there now two subjects within a single brain, each of which
1: is respectively unified? Exactly, exactly. So, um, if I understand the unity of consciousness by saying that if there's only one subject there, then yeah. the consciousness is unified. If you characterize unity of consciousness in terms of the number of subjects... Then I can understand what you mean. Mm-hmm. And then, if there are two subjects in the split-brain case, then the consciousness is disunified. Mm. But there is only one subject, in, even in split-brain case. Then consciousness is still unified. Yeah. So this is one the one way of the understandings of split-brain case and the debate over over debate over um, unity of consciousness right But still, I think there are a lot of different understanding of unity of consciousness, even focusing only on phenomenal unity. So I feel like still like con- debate is a little bit ambiguous, yeah, uh, particularly about how we can characterize the phenomenal unity of consciousness. Yeah, I wish we could all just agree on definitions. Everyone has their own different ways
0: of defining things, and it just makes makes everything so much complicated yeah (laughs) um all right so yeah another i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about cognitive phenomenology given that's what (laughs) what we're here to study um so i guess that's a question on the dimension aspect right so Mm. um how many different kinds of consciousness are there is there just sensory consciousness we're right now at a conference where the topic of the conference is cognitive phenomenology a lot of the philosophers are here thinking that there's some kind of Conscious uh, thought, um, yeah. phenomenally conscious thought that outstrips sensory consciousness. Yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering what what is your
1: basic position on cognitive phenomenology? If you <laughs> That's difficult. So uh, the reason why I attended this summer school is to know what position I want to take. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't yet decided my position about that. But basically, I'm very sympathetic to the Charles Zivert an attitude to this issue so it seems to me that he do not too much focus on theoretical distinctions about f- cognitive phenomenology so they focus more on like an um, actual cases of experiences yeah right? so he f- he tried to understand the debate over f- cognitive phenomenology and um, using possible examples of experiences. How, how should we think of this case? How should we think of that case? Or so on and so on. Right. So then, um, now my position is that there must be cognitive phenomenology in the sense that so we can have a very specific experience when I understand something, uh, which is very different from the case in which I cannot understand that, but having the same sensory experiences or so on, so right? So, for example, like when I listen to some Chinese speech, then if I don't know any Chinese words, so my, I cannot understand the Chinese speech, right? Right. So in comparison with the experience, if I know much about Chinese and uh, if I can understand the Chinese speech, my experience radically changes. And it seems
0: like the only way to account for that phenomenal difference is by appealing to some generis cognitive phenomenology?
1: No, the point is that Charles uh-huh. do not engage in that sort of debate.
0: Oh, yeah, okay. okay. So,
1: that. I just, what I want to say here is that I'm really committed to the view that so there is so-called phenomenology of understanding. Yeah. which must be distinct from just the sensory experiences of the speech. Yeah. But uh, I do not want to commit myself to the debate over whether or not it's sui generis or can be like uh, um, reducibly explained in terms of uh, other kinds of phenomenology.
0: Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, I guess um, just to clarify a little bit. So, there are philosophers... It seems like when we have thoughts, a lot of times we'll have those thoughts via inner speech. There are inner speech sentences in our heads or some kind of verbal imagery. Like I'll think of a yellow bus and an image of a yellow bus pops in my head. Mm. But inner speech and an imagery of that stor- visual imagery of that sort are both sensory phenomenon. So the people who think that cognitive phenomenology or conscious thought is... Irreducible to sensory phenomenon. They think there's a, you can consciously experience a propositional content of a thought that's over and above those sensory imageries. And you're saying that you're going to be agnostic with
1: respect to whether that sui generis conscious thought exists. Maybe. So I want to say that. So let's think of this difference. Yeah. So if I don't know anything about Chinese, but for some reason, just by accident, just uh, some inner speech about Chinese, Chine- you know, uh, if I have some inner speech experience about Chinese, then the imaginative experience of speech is very different from the case in which I understand the Chinese, then mm. my inner speech is meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. Right, So, my point is that if we really focus on ordinary experiences, we cannot um, um, disassociate purely sensory phenomenology from the ordinary sensory phenomenology. So, ordinary sensory phenomenology is always meaningful, uh, always associated with a lot of higher-order recognition or higher-order understanding, or so on and so on. Oh, I see. So, uh, the assumption that I, I want to reject is that we can imaginatively easily disassociate pure sensory phenomenology from that ordinary sensory phenomenology.
0: Right, okay. So when, we, so when you have an inner speech sentence in your head that you understand, the meaning is kind of inextricably bound up with the sentence. Exactly. And so you think that there is cognitive phenomenology in that respect, but whether that entails the irreducibility hypothesis, no. you're gonna, you don't know. But someone like Michelle Montag, as we saw yesterday, would say that that does entail the irreducibility hypothesis because she doesn't think that that pure sensory consciousness is equipped to explain the meaning. We don't have to get. Deep yeah, deep.
1: Okay. I, I think it's a kind of, of like a, a burden proof <laughs> issue. burden proof. Yeah, I mean, if uh which side want to say wants to say that there is pure sensory phenomenology yeah so if the side of like uh, uh, advocate of cognitive phenomenology uh, must say that there is pure cognitive phenomenology then it's a problematic for advocate of cognitive phenomenology but if the side of the um, opponent of cognitive phenomenology have to show that there is pure sensory phenomenology, then it's really bad for the opponent of cognitive phenomenology, right? Yeah. Which side have to argue for the existence of pure cognitive phenomenology or pure sensory phenomenology? Mm-hmm. I think this is my understanding of the debate. Yeah. So can I briefly, so you mentioned the other day that you, you've been
0: into a sensory deprivation tank. I would think, Yeah. I want to go into a tank to see whether you can dissociate the cognitive thought, the conscious thought from the sensory phenomenology. Because in that tank, if you're deprived of all sensory experiences and yeah. you're thinking, and there's ostensibly still something it's like for you to have that experience, that would seem to suggest that you can <laughs> dissociate the two. But that you didn't have that experience when you went in?
1: Well... When I was in sensory deprivation tank, mm-hmm. so I have two surprise I had two surprises. The one is that so my attention uh, really focused on bodily sensations oh, yeah, and I pumping of my heart or my very very small muscle muscle moving or something. On, so
0: on. Which are still sensory experiences. Very
1: sensory experiences. Right. So in that sense, I cannot get non-sensory experiences. Even I couldn't get non-sensory experiences. Even being in the tank. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I was also very much surprised by was that um, uh, this is a bit relevant to this talk, you know, <laughs> like. A, um, I totally lost the sense of time.
0: Oh, yeah. maybe imagine you mentioned that to me.
1: Yeah. I totally... Yeah. Time said, was quicker, you said, right? Yeah. Uh, time uh, was felt like like flowing quickly. Yeah. So it was very surprising for me because, you know, I didn't have nothing to do in the tank. Just a yeah. mental... Wandering, mind wandering, or so so right. Right. But still, you know, the time was felt flowing very quickly. Why? That's a yeah really interesting issue. Well, yeah, um, I
0: would intuitively think if you were to ask me that the opposite would be the case because you don't have that sensory stimuli that kind of can capture your attention and you can get lost in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you were to ask me, I would th- I would have th- thought that time, if anything, would. Seem to be longer. But. Yeah.
1: So, but if, uh, if moving right. back on the uh, original issue about cognitive phenomenology. Yeah. Um. Even when uh, I was in the tank, so you know, of course I had a lot of imaginative experiences. Like I, I made a lot of inner speech in the tank. For example, like how about hallucination when I. When I so so (laughs) so but all of the inner speeches were like kind of uh, associated with kind of understanding of the language. Mm. In that sense, you know, I do not say that my experiences while I had being uh, that I had while being in the tank can show. The existence of pure cognitive phenomenology, right? Neither a pure sensory phenomenology. So everything I, every experience that I had while being in tank in the tank, were kind of like um, <clears throat> non-pure phenomenology, like a kind of mixed of cognitive and the sensory phenomenology.
0: Yeah. And again, I just, I'm, I'm scared that we're using so many terms. People who aren't familiar with the literature might be getting lost. But by conscious thought, we just mean a, what its likeness to thinking that transcends any sensory imagery that's associated with thinking mm. or something like that. And also, I feel like some people who are listening might be asking, well, who cares whether thought is conscious? <laughs> is just to say one thing on that? right? <laughs> why they're why like, cares? Why? Yeah, they're like, Why are they going? Um, it It is, insofar as you care about philosophy or consciousness, there are theories of... One reason is that there are theories of consciousness which explain consciousness in solely sensory terms. Like Jesse Prince has mm-hmm. this intermediate level theory of consciousness where consciousness is explained solely in terms of intermediate level perception mm-hmm. or Michael Tai's view where he thinks... I forget the whole thing. He thinks yeah. that consciousness is poised, non-conceptual content mm-hmm. or something like that. So... If there is this existence of conscious thought, it would falsify many popular theories of consciousness
1: which try to explain consciousness in purely sensory terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there is another motivation for dealing with this issue, mm-hmm. like cognitive, cognitive phenomenology or what, what, how many kinds of um, phenomenology there are in our conscious experiences, which is related to like, artificial consciousness. AI is consciousness. Oh, yeah. Right? That's the stuff I love. Yeah, it's so. It's juicy. <laughs> for example, like if uh, there is only one kind of phenomenology, which is sensory phenomenology, then in order for artificial intelligence or robot to have consciousness, they must have sensory capacities. Yeah. But if there is another kind of phenomenology, for example cognitive terminology, which is associated to only with like cognitive capacities, mm. then it seems to be possible for AI or robot to have consciousness only with you know cognitive capacities to think or imagine. Right. Right? This is a big difference. So the issues over uh, how how many kinds of phenomenology there are in you know, conscious experiences is related to uh, how can we? How we can make conscious robot or like artificial consciousness?
0: Yeah, yeah. So two things. I'm actually writing a paper on this topic right now. Two things. The first is if you're gonna, so there you would have to not only be committed to an irreducible to say that you could have conscious AI independent of building any sensory mechanisms into it. You would only. You would have to say not only that cognitive phenomenology is irreducible but also that it can be instantiated independent of any sensory phenomenology which seem to be two different claims to Mm. say that it's not only irreducible but independent is a stronger claim right um because you I think there are some people like Joe Levine who think that yeah no it is irreducible but you still you
1: still need that sensory manifold for it to be instantiated Mm. on okay or something like that so I'm more interested in the independence. About kinds of phenomenologies. Same. Here. Yeah, so I, I'm not so much interested in whether or not one kind of phenomenology is sui generis or reducibly explained in yeah. terms of other kinds of phenomenology, uh, if the, this issue is dealt with independently from independence issue. Yeah. So what I'm interested in is whether or not one kind of phenomenological experience can occur independently from other kinds of yeah experiences this is really interesting issue
0: I think so too in the one of the papers (coughs) it's actually the paper I submitted to get into the conference it's Mm. I'm arguing for the strong primitivist view where it's not only irreducible but independent cognitive phenomenology and then I try to argue that that suggests that consciousness can be disembodied or it doesn't need that sensory mechanism Mm. which leads the way you know where you could get a sophisticated Mm. um ai personal assistant like a sophisticated version of siri that could potentially be conscious mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, um but c- circling back to the different dimensions of consciousness so right we, we've thus far just made a distinction between sensory consciousness mm-hmm. and cognitive consciousness yeah. but as you just alluded to there are other people like uh uriah kriegel right? yeah <laughs> my boss um yeah your boss yeah. who's also as i said one of my favorite contemporary philosophers yeah he, so yeah, in his book *Varieties of Consciousness*, he makes a distinction between all kinds of different ex- kinds of conscious experiences, which might be different than both cognitive and sensory phenomenology, mm-hmm. like a gentle yeah, experience, exactly
1: emotional experience, yeah, in, like a, how do you call it, like a, like a, the mm-hmm. kind of phenomenology associated with entertaining proposition, right? Oh with, yeah, yeah, without judging, with mm-hmm. this true or song, yeah.
0: yeah. so I'm wondering. How, d- do you how many different kinds? do you have any beliefs on this matter? Like how many different kinds of
1: conscious experience would you posit? No, I don't have any specific idea on that issue because I'm not sure how I can approach the issue. Hmm. So what method we can use to investigate how many kinds of phenomenology are there in conscious experiences? You're right, yeah have used a very phenomenological approach to it. So, but (coughs) I basically um, agree with him that the approach, phenomenological approach, meaning that just uh, uh, reflectively describe the experience that we try to target, right? So if we try to target cognitive phenomenology, Let's reflect on the experience of thinking, for example. Mm -hmm. Then, uh, try to find out some features of the thought experience. Mm -hmm. Then, um, compare it with other kinds of experiences. Then, try to pick out the feature which um, differentiate the thought experience from other kinds of experiences. Right. So, so basically, this approach is um, feasible and hopeful, but I want to—I haven't yet done that sort of activity by myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to do that to have some opinion about that. And yeah, it's just a my nice situation. And the uh, the theoretical unity
0: issue, which we began the podcast with, comes into play here too. Mm-hmm. I think because if you are Someone like Jesse Prince who just thinks there's just sensory consciousness, it's easy. You just explain that and then you've explained consciousness. But if you posit all these different kinds of consciousness, all of which are irreducible to one another, you got a lot more work to do. Yeah,
1: (laughs) if it's phenomenological too, we should do that, right? Yeah, you can just deny the phenomenology. (laughs) That's a (laughs) really bad idea if you want to investigate consciousness, right? right? We have to stick with phenomenological features of consciousness, this is yeah. an explanandum, right? What yeah. we try to explain. And that's why, that's why I always get
0: perturbed at people who are just doubt the validity of first personal approaches to consciousness. You know, oh. Some people just say, we just need a third person approach. We Phenomenological introspection isn't the way to go when it comes to discovering truths about consciousness. And that, I'm sitting here saying okay, I definitely want that third-person approach as well, but of course there's value in a first-person approach. That's how we're acquainted with consciousness. Yeah. That's, you know, I get, that's my basic perspective on it. Uh,
1: I want to take a little bit more. Hmm. So. Oh, yeah, drag me farther. So, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, if you are interested in consciousness, then what you want to explain are like features that you can find from first personal perspective. Mm. right? So if you just focus on some features which can be described from third person perspective, like function or physical basis of them or so on, so on, mm. then maybe what you are really interested in is not consciousness. Right. So this is my basic position. Oh I'm with you. I'm with you <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so I thought we could just end by briefly talking about the axiological question of consciousness, which is what, what, oh, yeah. what value does consciousness have? So I, could you just distinguish between different kinds of value questions when it comes to consciousness and different, kind of, different ways to approach that question?
1: Yeah, so I think there are at least four kinds of values we can investigate as the value of consciousness. So the first kind is cognitive value. Then the question is, what type of cognitive activity can only the possessor of consciousness perform? The second kind of value is epistemic value. Then the question is, what type of knowledge about the external world can only the possessors of consciousness have? Then third kind of value is moral value. I'm most interested in the moral value question. Yeah, that's what type of moral status can only the possessors of consciousness have? Yeah. Then fourth one, which is the most like uh, difficult to understand. And uh, but anyway, the fourth kind of value is aesthetic value. Aesthetic value. Mm. The question is, what type of aesthetic value can only the possessors of consciousness have? Mm-hmm. Right. So if there are two, like, um entities which are very similar in appearance mm-hmm. right so one is just a figure the other is just a for example real person right right so perhaps the position of consciousness makes the person to be more beautiful or to have some very specific aesthetic properties that the <laughs> other figure cannot have well, this is basic idea but I don't know how to It makes sense. No, I I would agree with that. Um, So I I
0: guess, again, laying my cards on the table and especially with respect to the moral value question, Mm. but it's my intuition that consciousness is in some sense the nexus of all value. So if Mm. I were to just snap my fingers right now and get rid of all consciousness, all conscious beings in the universe, there would be no morality anymore. Mm-hmm. Morality, would, morality would, so to speak, go out the window with consciousness. And perhaps all other kinds of value as well. Mm. Are you, do you agree with that? Or what's your perspective with respect to the moral well, value question? Um, I think I, we briefly discussed this the other day. Like, you know, yeah. Change.
1: I do not think that all of the values will distinguish, uh, disappear if every conscious creatures disappear hmm. but you know um, there are few kinds of value <coughs> no please give me time that's a really big question that's interesting so uh,
0: well anxious. yeah 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 so like one thing that you said the other day which i thought was intriguing just as you're thinking Um, You mentioned that, okay, well, even if all sentient beings or conscious beings were eliminated from the universe, maybe the environment or the Earth would, in some objective sense, still have value. It would still matter whether the Earth exists, even if there was no one there to experience the
1: environment. Okay, so... um. My intuition about the value, moral value well, related to consciousness is that <coughs> um, just suppose that almost all of conscious creatures disappear for some reason from this world. Mm. Then there remains only one conscious creature but very primitive type. Okay. So it cannot think. It cannot have desire. Mm -hmm. It cannot even have meaningful, perceptual experiences. Okay. The creature just experiences time. Right? This time? Time, yeah. uh, In the consciousness of the creature, like, time is felt, right? Mm. Time flows, but only that. Right. So, even in that case, oh, and suppose a father that... There are a lot of intellectual entities or creatures which do not have a consciousness, right? Like robot be okay. zombie robot, right? Yep. So, in that sort of world, that very poor conscious creature has moral status, like not to be eliminated, right? Mm-hmm. That conscious creature should not be eliminated to or killed. Yeah. So then, the intellectual creatures surrounding, uh, surrounding him or her, uh, who, which, I mean, so the zombie type intellectual creatures, have the duty mm. to protect the very poor conscious creature. <laughs> so
0: the super intelligent non conscious AIs have to protect the primitive sentient being.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So because. This is my intuition, but yeah. that creature is very special.
0: No, I, I share that intuition. I'm with you. I'm on board. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: and uh, that creature has some kind of very supreme value or absolute value so yeah. which uh, any other creatures in the world do not possess, mm. right? So very, very important and very, very, in a sense, valuable creature.
0: Yeah. So I guess the question would be, do the other creatures have any value? Do the super-intelligent non-conscious AIs have value? No, I don't
1: think so. If the super-intelligent creatures have society in which they live, like communicate, exchange, mm-hmm. then uh, there must be some moral value uh, which is instantiated in the society, right? Mm. So there must be some law of the society or there must be some like, moral principles of the society uh, to preserve the society. Right? Yeah, so that there are such senses of moral value in the society of zombie intelligent creatures. Yeah, but the moral value of the uh, The moral value which is possessed by the poor conscious creature is totally different from the other types of moral value. Yeah, that can be shared by the society or um, uh, Zombie type intelligent creatures. Yeah, I think we share intuitions there. Yeah, but this is really mysterious and uh, there Has not been much debate over this issue. Yeah, so um, A standard conception of the relation between consciousness and moral value is the capac- sentient capacity to have present experiences and the unpleasant experiences, right? Mm-hmm. So the possession of consciousness gives its possessor a moral status because the cap- capacity to have a consciousness is related to the capacity to have present experiences and unpresent experiences. Oh yeah. We shouldn't um, harm uh, that sort of creature because unpresent experiences are intrinsically bad for the creature right. and we should care of that sort of creature because you know present experiences are intrinsically good for that sort of creature i see right this is standard conception of the relation between consciousness and the moral status
0: right so it's not it's morality is grounded in consciousness but it's not consciousness per se it's in the capacity to suffer and have pleasant experiences and the idea is that you only get that capacity with consciousness
1: exactly and of course, like present, present experiences or unpleasant experiences are conscious experiences, right? Right. So, in that case, uh, in this sense, the capacity to suffer or capacity to, like, to be, how can I say, to have pleasure yeah, is essentially related to the position of consciousness, but only in the sense that the sentient kind of consciousness is related.
0: Yeah. And- that, yeah. So I was just going to say, that gets to the question that we were briefly discussing on the train the other day, which is the flip side of that. Yeah. Um, in order to have the capacity to suffer or feel pleasure, you need consciousness. But can you have consciousness without having the capacity to suffer or feel pleasure? Um, I would argue no, but I think that's because I've been partially indoctrinated by Buddhists and their whole thing is like life <laughs> is suffering and consciousness is <laughs> suffering. Right, that's a very interesting idea, right?
1: So uh, every conscious being, regardless of whether how it's sophisticated, yeah, every conscious being can suffer. And
0: <laughs> I don't, but I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. But it's, inter- it's an interesting question. And I mean, who knows, perhaps that thought experiment of there being a universe devoid of consciousness, while conceivable, is impossible if panpsychism is true, because mm. consciousness is infused with the universe. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, one very interesting issue is that like the value, moral value of consciousness can be grounded in the hard problem of consciousness, Mm. right? So just as uh, remember again the possible world in which there is only one conscious, pure conscious creature which can only have time consciousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, surrounded by being surrounded by a lot of uh, zombie type intelligent creatures. Right. right? <coughs> so, but you know, like the reason why the pure conscious creature has excellent value is that the existence of a consciousness is very mysterious. Why it is possible for the creature to have a consciousness yeah. in such a way that it is grounded in. Like some kind of machinery or like brain like structure or so on, so right? Just don't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's a. This creature is very special, very mysterious. How the kind of structure gives rise to the position of consciousness? Yeah. Wow, it's wow, right? Kind of, oh, or wow, type of reaction to the existence of a consciousness in this creature grounds yeah. the extremely excellent value of this each
0: and and i think maybe that's a good point to end on because that's why i'm so attracted to consciousness studies it's the most you know people would say like oh that's a cool like abstract thing to study and i'm like what are you talking about it's the most familiar <laughs> thing in the world yeah and the most mysterious thing in the world yeah how are we conscious what is this well you know what's going on so yeah i i, I relate to that fundamental <laughs> mystery but um Yeah, so maybe we'll end there. Thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.